Okay, let's begin. I am Lanice Antoine Shelley, and I'll be your host through constructive, healing-based conversations designed to illuminate the adoptee, parents, and the adoption curious. We center the topics around community, mentorship, leadership, and healing, so you get a multi-dimensional view that is ultimately empowering. These are the voices who could not speak when they were young. Okay, before we get into it, I wanted to share with you some new offerings. We've just partnered with Isaac Edder's company called Identity, who provides adoption consulting and short practical guide pamphlets, a practical guide to transracial adoption and a practical guide to black hair care. As a listener, you get 15% off. Just click the link in the show notes where you can find all references and hot topics that are talked about in each episode. And since you're listening, I just wanted to thank those of you who've rated and reviewed this podcast, because every five-star click helps remind these platforms that our work matters and helps me keep going. So those of you who are getting so much out of these conversations and have taken the 30 seconds to write a positive takeaway, I see you and I thank you. Those who haven't yet, now is the time, my love. Let's talk about it on Instagram after you go ahead and click five stars and write a review. Hello there. How is your heart? And here's another question. Do you feel a sense of belonging? I believe that belonging surpasses inclusivity. When you belong, you feel a rooted ownership in where you are, who you're with, or the task in front of you. As challenging as being an artist is, and being a creative happens to be, I belong in this realm of art making. I feel energized by the prospect of beginning a new project or bringing the fledgling parts of my imagination into thunderous fruition. I interviewed my guest today back in January, and I have to tell you, re-listening to this conversation brought me so much joy. Jacob Taylor Mosqueda has such an incredible spirit. His work is steeped with intentionality and purpose. If you've ever read The Alchemist, you understand me when I tell you that I think Jacob is in the eye of his personal legend. A personal legend is a soul's path. It's palpable when you run into someone who is close to their personal legend because they exude a clarity and a sense of groundedness, like Oprah or the Obamas. (laughs) It has nothing to do with success, necessarily, or first world idea of success, but rather a radiance of having found, achieved, or being en route to your greatness. It's a lot to say about a person who I just met. (laughs) But we instantly became siblings in solidarity. Jacob is a Colombian adoptee who taught himself Spanish in two years, and now teaches it in Seattle. He wrote, I Met Myself in October, a memoir, and he's here to talk about his journey of discovery, self-actualization, and identity. This is going to be a good one. Let's get to it. Hola. Hola. 
How are you? Bien, bien. Kijan oye. Oh, God. That's, I, that's all I know. no thanks again for the invite like it's great i think it's great that you're what you're doing and it's just yeah i'm inspired and please keep going (laughs) yeah yeah well yeah absolutely i i must Uh, so okay let's get started um on your website you have your memoir is that out yet is your memoir out or uh because it says coming in October. Is that available now? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, so it's weird. I'm I'm have to check into that and see if that's why it says that. But yeah, it was it was um the paperback was released in August and the Kindle was in like July or June, one of those. Okay. Well, tell us about it. What's it yeah. about? Yeah, so the memoir, thank you. <laughs> um the memoir is called I Met Myself in October, uh, mm-hmm. a memoir of belonging. And basically, it's about my journey through trying to understand how I belong to both of my families. So I was born in Colombia, in the city of Cali, and then adopted at the age of seven months. So uh, then I was raised up here in Washington State, not here in Seattle, where I currently live, but a small rural town, not even really a town, just a rural area <laughs> um, southwest of Seattle, about two, two and a half hours drive southwest of Seattle. Um, and raised by completely white parents, um, a mom and a dad, and then an adopted sister as well, also from Colombia, but we're not biological siblings. Um, so do people, do mm-hmm. people tell you that you and your sibling look alike? No, no, no. She's more, um, white passing, especially in the winter. <laughs> okay. Cause they, they do that with my sister and I, we were, uh, both adopted from the same orphanage in Haiti and, and we're not biological, but people tell us all the time that we look alike and we're just like, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. Just roll with it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's, there's just no need to explain to strangers the whole tale. Right. So true. So true. Yeah. And there's no time, right? There's not usually time for all that to go into that depth, right? With people you just met, like, no. Um, Yeah. And for me, I think people got to, they got to earn that, that trust to really dive deep with that. Right. Um, Yes. um, So yeah, the memoir was an idea. Uh, I always loved to write and I was persuaded by a lot of family in Colombia and some friends up here as well. Um, to just start putting things down on paper for, for an eventual book. I didn't know what it was going to look like, if it was going to be, if I was going to put a fictional spin on it or if it was just going to go for the straight memoir. Uh, and it made more sense to just be really, really, really thorough with the truth. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's about uh, trying to find a place to belong here as a black male in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um also trying to understand what it means to be black in this country um, while not having a, a black upbringing, right? And being raised mm-hmm. in a white area with white parents and white ideas, like expectations, everything. Um, and then meeting the biological family, trying to learn how to be black in South America on top, mm. of, on top of trying to learn the language 
Mm. And have you, are you fluent? Yeah, I'm, I'm completely very comfortable in both languages now. I teach Spanish for a living now. So um, yeah, I, I, I was just on the phone with my aunt in Colombia for two hours. So I, uh, I feel very comfortable getting off the plane in any speaking country now and going for it. Wow. How long did it take you to learn Spanish? I think to feel confident with it, uh, probably a good year and a half, two years. Um, but that, but that, wow. was, that was due to living down there for seven and a half months. And part of the memoir talks about that process as well, living down there with a friend of mine and her cousin for that amount of time. And then teaching English at the orphanage that I'm from and the kids helping me with my Spanish and me with their English. Um, and then meeting the biological family was <laughs> sink or swim with the Spanish. So, uh, and then I think I looked at everyone as a, as a teacher, the taxi drivers, homeless people, the lady who sold mangoes in the street, the guy who sold coffee down the other street, like everyone, every conversation is an opportunity. Mm. So uh, I looked at it that way. And that, I think that helped a lot um, to start to understand the, cultural nuances, the linguistic ones, um, all of that. You're the second adoptee that I've ran into who was able to relearn their native tongue. Mm. And how did that feel once you were able to relearn Spanish? Well, actually, how old were you when you were adopted again? Seven months. Seven months. So you didn't know Spanish. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, English is my first language. Absolutely. So that's even harder though, right? Yeah. And and it's such an incredible feat that you were able to to accomplish that. Did you feel more Colombian when you when you became Ooh, fluent? That is a good ah, oh, that's the question. I would say without hesitation, unequivocally, yes. Hmm. Uh, I felt really a lot of the critis- criticism that I received from Colombian immigrants here in Seattle was that, that this question of of getting to be called Colombian and earning Colombian, your Colombian badge or whatever. Right. And this could apply to any country. If you're an Ethiopian adoptee, if you're a Haitian adoptee, if you're a Chinese, whatever, a lot of the times with the immigrant community, what I've seen here in Seattle with the Colombian immigrant community here and the Colombian adoptee community here, um, there's a tiny bit of tension there because sometimes we'll find people in these parties or these soccer game viewing things or whatever a little bit of pity on the part of the colombian immigrants perspective just because well okay yeah you're colombian and you're born there but mm, yeah you don't speak spanish so how colombian do you really get to be right it's interesting because then it's then we get into the question of okay well who determines whether or not i get permission into colombianness or haitian haitianness mm-hmm. or or whatever Right, like yeah. who determines why, mm-hmm. how, when, mm-hmm. uh, under what circumstances, and and for whose benefit, right? So like, um, it was tough for me because I was getting a lot of criticism for 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 not speaking Spanish, and so I wanted to be able to say, walk into those soccer viewing parties or walk into those Independence Day festival celebrations that we have up here, um, confidently and say to them, yes, okay, now I belong to this community and I'm going to do that and I'm going to learn Spanish and I'm going to learn it better than you. And, 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 and that's, what's going to happen. And you're just going to have to roll with it. <laughs> so, 
Uh, that's awesome. That's, yeah, that's what's happened. And I think to your question about did I feel more Colombian? Yes, absolutely. And now I'm in a position to where I can talk to my aunt for two hours and be understanding everything and speak at a, at a, at a normal fluent speed with her um, and not be confused about any, any words, any translations, any tenses, any conjugations, anything and completely there. So I feel absolutely 100% content uh, with, with that. It's been tough. It's been a long arduous process, but it's also been, I think the most fruitful because I wanted to have that, that experience of meeting the family family for the first time and, and then building a relationship with them, not through a translator. I, I needed that for myself. Mm. Language really developed into an obsession. I, I have mm. no qualms about uh, admitting that at all. Um, it was, it was necessary um, for me, for other people, it's going to be other things, but for me, it was the language and not necessarily with the idea of teaching it. That just came, it just happened, but certainly to be able to communicate confidently with them on a regular basis. Um, it was, it was, it was necessary. Why did you name your memoir? I met myself in October. Yeah. Uh, uh, October 26th was the day that I met my biological family. And so this was 2004. It was a Tuesday. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, but I think when you meet your, as an adoptee, obviously I can't and won't speak for all adoptees everywhere. That wouldn't be fair. Um, but I can say that in my experience, speaking with adoptees here and abroad, meeting a biological family is in a way meeting part of yourself because at the end of the day, they are a part of your story in some, in some fashion. Um, right. And so for me, uh, I just, that was a title I was playing with. It started as a poem years ago and I wish I would have, I wish I could find that. <laughs> I don't have it anymore. Um, but it started as a poem and then um, just kind of developed into what it is now. So meeting myself in October felt like, felt appropriate. Um, mm. October is also a month that I, that I, that I enjoy up here because it's when the leaves start to turn colors. Uh, it starts to get a little crisp and I, I, I enjoy the Northwest fall a lot. Um, and so there was that piece. There was the piece of just meeting the family. Um, my sister's birthday is October 1st. My, uh, so that was, that's part of it. Um, there's just uh, October just is, is, it's always been a good month, uh, a pensive month. Um, and so then um, it's a time for reflection about transition as well with the leaves. It's just, it's up here, they get bright orange, bright red, bright yellow and everything in between. So it's, 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 it's a magical month up here. Um, and I wanted that feeling to be associated with the book as well. Um, and so it just, it just made sense. And then a mem- the subtitle, a memoir of belonging uh, because um belonging is is what so many people yearn for regardless of the community regardless of the country regardless of the ethnic background the religious preference the or lack thereof um the whatever it will be in my case belonging to two families in two countries and doing that in a productive um positive manner
Hey, I want to share with you something that has changed my life. It's more like someone, my therapist. Why is she so important? Well, because I want to win in this life. I want to break through the carousel of stories I've compiled that hold me back, that keep me from expanding into my full potentiality. Stories of unworthiness, not enoughness, and even stories of questioning why I am here. I also want to stop dumping my unsorted feelings on the people around me and reacting with the same behavioral patterns that keep me stuck. Conversations with my therapist have made me more confident, clearer in my intention, and more centered in my spirit. That is why I am elated that we are sponsored by BetterHelp, where you can, from wherever you happen to be right now, match with a therapist tailored to your exact needs. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. Someone who you can text at any time and schedule online for either a chat, Zoom, or phone call. And if it turns out that your therapist isn't the right fit, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional cost. Visit the link in the show notes, betterhelp.com, when they were young, to get 10% off the first month. You need to click the link in the show notes in order to get the 10% discount. I want to see you win, beloved. Let's do it together. Visit the link, betterhelp.com, when they were young. I went to undergrad at uh, Cornish College of the Arts. Yes. And so I love Seattle. Yes. And, yes. and I know Autumn in Seattle very well. Uh-huh. It's gorgeous. Okay. And there, yeah. you're right. There is something to fall, right? Mm-hmm. This, that season of harvest, of right. reflection, of the fecundity of the mm-hmm. earth is palpable during mm-hmm. fall. And, and so it makes sense that all of those those things happen to you, the new chapter and transitioning into winter, the the season of of wisdom and yes. knowing. Yes. So it's a powerful, powerful title, my friend. <laughs> Gracias. <laughs> yes. Uh, I loved your, your contribution to this adoptee life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You spoke about something really powerful regarding just your privilege as an adoptee. Yeah. And this is something that we rarely touch on. And I definitely am acknowledging my privilege as an adoptee when I go back to Haiti or when I encounter my biological family. Mm-hmm. And so can you speak more about that contribution to the this adoptee life uh the blog that's really awesome i'm actually having amanda come on the podcast um so that will be a fun yeah yeah Uh, i'm looking forward to that conversation but um can you speak more about your privilege yeah um yes so when I think of the word privilege, my mind goes immediately to another word, uh, meaning opportunity and access. Um, and for me, and, that, and this is where perhaps there's a slight philosophical departure from some of my Colombian adoptee friends, even up here in Seattle or 
Australia and Europe as well. Whereas I feel like really, uh, and this is not to say that I feel like I was saved or anything like this. It's just that I need to acknowledge that I did a master's degree in the Netherlands. I am doing another graduate program here in Seattle right now at a private university and I'm paying for it myself. Um, just the access and opportunities uh, for me, and that doesn't necessarily mean for the US, that means for Europe or wherever else I've been. Um, I need to acknowledge that uh, the bigger picture is that had I not been a relinquished and adopted, I would not have been able to access these 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 kinds of opportunities. And I wouldn't be speaking here to you. I would be literally, I know exactly where I would have been raised and, and I know exactly where, I know the, the neighborhood, I know the street, I know the street corner that I would have grown up on. I, I, I've seen it and I know it. I know how to, I, I know exactly um, the socio, socioeconomic um, pressures that would inevitably have been a part of my story. I might not even be alive. I would have had to, I would definitely have had to do military service. I would not have an education past third or fourth, the equivalent of third or fourth grade. I would have three or four kids, like all my male cousins my age, all by three, four different women. That's, that's, that, that's, that's, that's what happens in that part of the, not Kali specifically my city where I was born, but Tumaco, where my biological family is from down there. And I've seen that and I've lived there and I've worked there and I've, I've been active there, um, mostly with education. And so I know in a very profound way how I would have been raised. And I know the expectations and I know I would have been involved indirectly or, direct, or directly um, with uh, illicit um, drugs, uh, either trafficking or growing or both. I know that. That's just part of the reality of that corner of the country down there. Um, and so uh, that leads me to think about how I can be productive for myself and for other people uh, up here and down there. And that's what I'm talking about when I think about privilege. I, I think really have a real opportunity to sit here on a Saturday morning on a, on a, on a, on a, on an expensive laptop speaking to you when we're, we're in different cities and different States and we're speaking in English, which also there's also linguistic uh, issues at play when we talk about privilege and my privilege here right now as an adoptee, right? Like there are lots of things, lots of layers with, with privilege. I think mm -hmm. um, I wish that I could go back and forth between Colombia and the U.S. more often um, to really talk more and have more of these conversations with adoptees here and also uh, mothers um, who have relinquished down there um, just to talk, keep talking about this, this, is, this issue of privilege and access. Um, but I am a firm believer in, in the force of education. And so uh, when I think about privilege and access. Again, I'm thinking about education quality of especially early learning initiatives down there and up here. And so I just, I just, I'm rambling at this point, but I think, um, yeah, I, I privilege is something that, that is something that I'm forced to think about every single day. 
Um, well, it's powerful that you even consider it, right? And I really appreciate you using the word relinquish mm. as opposed to abandon. And I feel that it is imperative that adoptees pivot in their way of thinking mm. because this orphan idea, this uh, story of woe that has been peddled and um, regurgitated in fairy tales and novels all over the world mm-hmm. needs to stop. Mm-hmm. And it starts with us with reclaiming our stories and figuring out, okay, this is how I'm going to address uh, my my particular narrative. And, and it's a powerful thing when you can do that. And so the way that you speak about your adoption is really empowering and it's it's, I find it to be very wonderful um, and steeped in self-discovery. Mm, yes. And I, yeah, and I really want to highlight that, highlight adoptees who are at a place where they've made that pivot so they can model what it's like on the other side to mm. other adoptees who are mm. still in the shame of it. Mm-hmm. Because the shame of it, once we understand that the feeling of not enoughness is a choice. Mm. It's not a reality. It's a construct. Mm. We are able to really harness our lives. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, ooh, I like, I think you gave me some mental homework for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a big one to unpack. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll agree. I think I've met some adoptees here and again, abroad who, who, mm-hmm. I would say maybe just knowing them and their experiences might have a volatile re- response to what we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I, yeah, I just want to honor that. I think that the, 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 this question of shame is really, really powerful. Um, it is. I, I think um, Sometimes what I've seen is, and I think I ran through this a little bit myself with, with the shame. It took me a while to even name that, mm-hmm. to name and to, rec- to recognize and name that that was what was happening internally. Um, it's, it's, I think writing for me has been really powerful in that because it's to really see it on a, on a piece of paper um, and then to just work through those things has been massive. And I think more people, it would do more people a good amount of positive to sit down with a piece of paper and just write out pros and cons about what they're feeling and just like to see it. Because it's one thing to have these ideas and they can be super abstract and then you get distracted and there's work and then maybe you have a kid or two or whatever. And then maybe there's job stress, all kinds of things, all kinds of factors. But when you can sit down uninterrupted with a, with a, a notepad and a, and a pen and just go at it and just vent mm-hmm. on a paper and then really see that step back and see that and read it out loud. Maybe read it, read it out loud to your partner, read it out to a friend, a family member, just to dive into that. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, 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 it's necessary and it helps. It helped me. It helps a lot of people that I, that I'm friends with now um, just to see things and really to be able to, to, to combat it. Cause if you can't name it, if you don't know what you're up against, then I don't know, for me, I think it's just been much more difficult to, to, to overcome those obstacles. Mm. 
And writing your memoir, how cathartic was that for you? Were there any like epiphanal thoughts, any kind of healing that happened during the process of that? That's good. I don't think, I really don't think healing is is final. Mm -hmm. I think, I think this is a process. I think um, the short answer to your question is yes, with the capital cursive Y. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it, It has been magical to be able to, I think because if the process itself is is the writing, yes, the writing ideas, the coming up with with a format and the, the structure for the chapter and for the whole manuscript itself, and not only to remember certain things, but then also to relive those experiences because that's what we're talking about here. We're not just talk, it's not just a oh here I'm I'm sitting on my computer in a coffee shop and I'm writing a chapter here and then I'm editing and sending it off to editors and all this. No, it's, it's really diving deep with those memories. And we all know that with memories, good or bad, we feel with each memory. And so sometimes um, those memories can be hurtful and, and yes, okay. There can be shame. There can be doubt. There can be all kinds of emotions that, that, that plague us. In, in ways we're not even really aware of sometimes. So yes, cathartic, absolutely, because I got to relive some incredible moments, but also some very difficult ones. And then to talk to people, because essentially with a memoir, you have to turn into a journalist of, of, of your own life and memories. And so then you, I reached out to people who were living those experiences with me and to compare my, ver- my the version of my memories with theirs, they were there in the same moment. And sometimes it was like, yeah, 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 that's right. Oh, but this detail, no. And this detail, yes. And this detail, no. And so um, just to relive those was, was, was amazing. Um, and it's been also cathartic in a way because now that it's out and um, I just, just today, I'll share this with you real quick. Just today, I got a message from this person who I met in Colombia in 2004 when I was taking Spanish classes at the university down there. Uh, and it was literally like during that month and a half before meeting the family. And then a couple months afterwards. Um, and this was, uh, is uh, a young lady who lives in Manchester, England um, and her sister, their father's from the same city as me, Cali. And, but their mother's from, yeah, from the UK. Uh, and they were sent down there by the family to essentially to learn Spanish for some time. So we were in the same Spanish speaking, Spanish program. Uh, we haven't connected in seven or eight years with social media. And then she wrote me today, just out of the blue, saying that she had bought the um, the Kindle version of the book and had read it. And that was sp- mm. spreading it to her sister and her dad and her friends and her fiance and, um, and wrote me like, ah, I don't know, three long paragraphs. <laughs> uh, WhatsApp and we, so now we're connected and we're talking again and it's 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 wonderful. So it's been good to get to hear things from people who are going through similar situations, and also mm-hmm. um, to hear from people who have nothing really, no direct or indirect connection to adoption. They're just curious, uh, mm-hmm. and the conversations that have that have emerged out of those have been delightful, uh, and the friendships that have arisen out of uh, arisen out of this as well. It's just, it's been, it's been really nice. So I think, um, yeah, but the healing piece is, is 
is is not complete because there's still some unsettled things that that need to happen. Um, yeah. And uh, that'll take time. I don't think I don't think there's going to be any kind of destination where I say or moment where I say, hmm, yes, okay, I made it. I'm healed. <laughs> I'm healed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get it. Okay, check that off the box now. Check that off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but it's it's certainly given me more clarity uh, and more more time to just pause and appreciate other things. I think you're exactly right. Healing is a process and sometimes it's a lifelong process depending on what it is and who you are. And there is no destination. It is in the doing of it. It is in in the being in the arena and playing full out as Brene Brown likes to say Uh, and being wholehearted about the attempt. And that's what I'm about. Let's be wholehearted about the attempt And you discover new avenues and things might turn and, or you might wake up one day and it still burns a little and that's okay. Mm -hmm. I feel like with adoptees, a lot of times there's a lot of repression and suppression because Mm -hmm. they have been told to not feel certain ways. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're right about writing it down. Finding ways to express yourself is imperative I just wrote a play and it was extremely cathartic because I worked out all these things. And as I was directing the actors and, uh, and watching one of the actors literally play me, it was fascinating that, that I was witnessing myself work through it. (laughs) It was so weird. I can't can't imagine that. You know, (laughs) but I I have come to a new understanding of myself and of the the great leagues that I've already tread to the place that I am now to the woman that I am now and mm-hmm. I can find triumph in that right yes. and oh, celebrate word. Oh, yes I love that word you know yes. and to celebrate where I am now mm-hmm. and um and I think that's important too to to just see that you have you have overcome so much and the things that we have created out of these unsavory me- memories or mm-hmm. events in our lives. Yeah. Um, so yeah. how long did it take you to, to write this book? Yeah. No, um, I think I started jotting down notes on a notepad. Ah, I think well, I had a journal one. I had a journal when I was in Colombia and I met my family Um and so that was yeah 2004 with just journaling uh so that's yeah already what 16 gonna be 17 years ago this year wow um and then writing down just ideas for poems and maybe there was a short story that i started two years ago so that was i don't know probably in 20 2009 2010-ish around there and then i think probably in 2000 16 around there 2015 2016 that's when i started to think well maybe other friends right friends and family in colombia too were saying well why don't you just write a book about it and i shot down the idea initially because i thought well you know what i don't have time and writing a book is a large endeavor and there's editors and there's right do i go traditional publishing do i publish myself like what's that process like and and just money and 
I didn't want to deal with it. It seemed like it just seemed like honestly, it just seemed like too much, too much at that time because it was just busy with other things. Um, and then when I moved back here, I moved back up here in 2017 from Colombia after living in Colombia for a year and a half almost. Um, I thought, well, yeah, now I have because I teach up here, right? So I, I have summers off, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is the perk. <laughs> <It's> the perk. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I thought, well, if I have the time, right, especially in the summers, why not, why not try to put some kind of manuscript together? And then, uh, yeah, and then I took a, a solo backpacking trip through Spain and Portugal. And so in coffee shops and on the beaches and in a castle, I was just writing down notes again. And then to put together kind of some kind of structure for the chapters. And then when I got back here, it took probably, yeah, a year and a year and two, three months to get uh, to get it all down. Um, <laughs> then, of course, continuous editing throughout, and more editors and more editors. And I had, I think, at one point, four editors working with me on it um, in <laughs> three different countries, which is a little bit interesting. Working with like the time zones and the just yeah, someone in South Africa, someone in the Netherlands, two people here, and yeah, it was just it was a lot, but. Yeah, so I think in total, probably I'm going to say two strong years uh, for for the whole process. Is it available in Spanish? Good, good question. Yes, it's being translated right now, and I have a guy in 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 Colombia um, who's who's doing that. Some of my friends and coworkers are like, "Well, you could do that yourself. You fluent in both." Yeah, yes, but again, that's time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have three jobs, and I'm in grad school right now. Like, there's no, there's no way. Um, so I thought, well, um, one of my former students, her father does translations, large text translations down in Colombia. And so he said, yeah, you know what? I'm more than happy to help you out. We'll give you a fantastic discount because you were my daughter's teacher and it worked out really well. So he's, he should have the manuscript all finished, uh, by the end of February, I think. Um, and then we'll see what avenue I take for, 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 for the publication of the Spanish version. But okay. yeah, definitely on the way. Definitely on the way. It's so exciting. Uh, I put your memoir on my resource page on my website. Oh, gracias. Thank you so much. That's yeah, great. absolutely. And I will be making sure everyone knows about it oh, as an option. Great. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. And I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put a plug in as well when I, so I'm off uh, social media right now, but I'm coming back in March. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, more than happy to, to, to throw out your play and like these, like this is, this is amazing. I, I can talk to you for hours. I'm sure. Like, <laughs> now are your parents Caucasian or black or oh, yeah, no, very, yeah, very <laughs> blonde, blue eyed, the whole, the whole thing. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, my mom's white. Um, that's interesting. And then you identifying as a black man, like, did you come to that or was that an own curiosity and feel free to not answer any of these questions, but um, I I always want to honor people's privacy because they feel like that's been taken by adoptees as well. You know, um, a sense of this is, this is actually sacred 
and I don't have to tell you. (laughs) So, but it's very interesting as I go deeper into identifications for adoptees and especially interracial, intercultural, international adoptees and those that have been raised by Caucasian people and whether they identify as a person of color. And I've ran across uh, some adoptees that are clearly BIPOC, but they identify as white. Yeah. And which breaks my heart. And trust me, I will be writing a play about it. And, and, and so I, I was talking to my mom yesterday about it because there was one particular adoptee interview that I did that prompted this idea because I was literally looking at a BIPOC person, but they believed themselves to be white. And I did the investigative work of James Baldwin talked about how whiteness, um, this idea of whiteness is a construct that was invented. And even white people, not all of them adhere to it. It is a choice. And those in the uh, early 1800s that came over from Ireland, Italy, um, Spain, weren't considered white until they adopted that idea in America. And then they became white. And, and it, it was made to obviously subjugate and diminish other people who were of certain, certain economic statuses and, and so on and so forth. And so it was just really fascinating observing this adoptee. And I'm like, this is something that hasn't been, that's unchartered and needs to really be illuminated in the adoption community, the white supremacy aspect of it. And I touch on it a little bit in this play. My play is called Pretended Pretend. and Pretended. And um, I'm so sorry, I should have invited you. There was, um, I had a reading um, on Thursday. It was like this huge event and you could have watched it. Um, But like 700 people were viewers and it was this big thing. And, um, and I was super excited about it, but, um, yeah, I, I twisted the word pretended, uh, from my experience of pretending in adoption Mm. and which happens in, um, biological families too, to some extent, like with family situations that are just supremely, uncomfortable and you feel like an imposter in your own home and yet you're adhering to certain rules constructs that were created by other people and so pretended really aims right at those ideas these constructs that we create in adoption and whether they are true or not Mm -hmm. um and it just pulls it apart and is very controversial in a lot of ways. Um, there's one, I, I, I loathe to like, uh, to tell you everything about it because hopefully someday you can see it, but like, um, yeah, absolutely. there's, there's one moment where it will make you clutch your pearls. (laughs) (laughs) Um, everyone, literally my phone started to blow up when this moment happened. Everyone was like, is this true? (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I'm like, everyone calm down, calm down. Um, There are a lot of things that I stole from my life, but a lot of things that I made up as well, just for a dramatic effect. But, 
But um, but yeah, the idea of identity is very fascinating uh, to me. And and it's great that you came to the fact that you are a black man. Like, what was that journey like for you? It's difficult. I'm not gonna lie. Like I I got called the N word a couple times in elementary school. I remember one time it happened. Something happened in, in middle school, and I got home dinner table with my parents and my sister and I was just pissed. I was like Ugh, fuming. And my parents were like, what's wrong with you? What's, what's, what's up? Aren't you going to eat? And, and I was like, no, I told them what happened. And my dad was so, what's the word? Dismissive and nonchalant. I was just like, well, you're not black, so don't worry about it. And I was, and he was like, yeah, he was like, you're not black, so you don't need to, uh, that, that, that's their, they don't know what they're talking about and, and you're not black, so it's fine. Move on. And I was like, what? 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 what the hell are you talking about? Um, and I didn't say that, though, because I was in middle school and I didn't have yeah. uh, the vocabulary or the maturity or the, the courage to, to confront that. And so I was like, oh, shit. Well, yeah, I guess Well, he's the adult. He knows more than I do about the world, so uh, maybe he's right. And so I didn't feel like I had permission to to call myself black. Um, I could call myself Colombian, but then I didn't know if there were black people in Colombia at that time. I didn't know. I knew that I looked like the black athletes I was seeing on television, or um, I remember there was a there was a uh, a player in particular with the Seattle Mariners baseball club that, that I adored. He was one of the black guys on, on that team. Um, he was my idol. Um, and then there was people like middle school was like, this is 96, 97, 98 for me. This is, so this is all like hip hop. This is like with Diddy and Mace and like <laughs> those guys. And I'm like, Oh, I, I kind of look like some of these people, but okay. But then that those were my only mirrors. Right. So like, but then I didn't have any cultural thing, like uh, any attachment to any of the literature or the music or the, the, the scientific contributions. I had no idea um, of anything black. And so I didn't feel like I could call myself black until I think college is when I started to kind of meet some other people and they would like, they would ask me, Hey, so where'd you grow up? And then I would tell them, uh, and no one knew where it was. And what, what do you mean? You're living in Tacoma. Like Tacoma's uh, over here. Tacoma is considered to be more of a black town ish, and especially in the South end of, of Tacoma. And I went to college in the South end of Tacoma. And so the expectation was that I was a quote unquote, normal black guy who grew up in that area. And then when I tell them some of my story, like, wait, okay. And just by opening my mouth, I was like, nah, man. And I got shunned from a black, uh, a BSU, club because I wasn't black enough the leader of that club told me that literally and so I was like okay well clearly I can't okay I can't be black so then I'll go over here with the Latin Latin American club and there was a bit of tension there as well because I didn't speak Spanish at that time All right so it's like okay well how do you how do I how do I who who and how, who's going to give me the key and how do I get access to the key and the, the proper door to get access into that um, and that took research. It took, um, trips to Colombia, 
And so I started really kind of owning my blackness, I think more, more so in Colombia. Um, and then up here, it took, it took a little bit longer, but yeah. Um, and even now, like I have a few black coworkers at the school that I work at, which is really nice. And they've been really accepting and warm and, and that's been really great. Um, and I go to some black owned, um, there's a black owned coffee shop that opened up last year here, uh, two actually, no, two, there's two. And I go to one of them quite frequently and I, I can feel connected to, to the community that way, but it's still, it's still a bit of a struggle, um, because of, again, that, that, that belonging piece. Mm-hmm. So, and even, yeah, but then, but then there's parent night at the school, right? And it's, it's always, there's always one or two parents that are like, mm, yeah, but how are you going to teach my son or daughter Spanish? Like, in New York or Miami, I'm just one more like, oh yeah, okay, he's Dominican. Okay, he's Cuban. Okay, mm-hmm. he's Cuban. Okay, it's easy. Up here though, I don't look like a, the traditional Spanish teacher. Up here, this traditional Spanish teacher is Mexican-American or Mexican or white, but they're all female or, or Peruvian or, or Colombian, um, but white Colombian. And so that's always a story. So now I have to start every single new class with new, every new batch of students. I start the first class with a history lesson on the transatlantic slave trade in Latin America. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Because, wow. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, but it's been a, it's been a process and I feel happy and proud about, about where I'm at now for mm-hmm. sure. As well, you should be, because it took me a long time to become as Afrocentric as I am now, as Haitian-centric. I identify as a Haitian-American or just a Haitian, to be honest. Right. And and I've ran into the same kind of obstacles as you in the respect that other Haitians, because I don't speak Creole. And I was adopted when I was four. So oh. I knew Creole. Oh, and yeah. I had to learn English. and there are those who've tried to take my blackness or take my Haitianness and say, Oh no, you haven't earned that because a, B and C Uh and you do have to come to a solid place in yourself and say, no, you don't define it. I do. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. No, I, I totally, that's what I, I, the last time there was a Colombian immigrant guy, some old man in a coffee shop, um, I saw him and he had a little Colombian flag bracelet on and I had one at the time too. And uh, he was speaking on the phone in Spanish and then I recognized the accent. He was from the same city that I'm from. And so I was like, Hey, which, which I asked him in, in Spanish, which part of Cali are you from? And he looked at me and he's like, well, how do you, how do you know I'm from Cali? I was like, well, the accent I can hear it's clearly, you're clearly from Cali. And he was like, Hmm. But, but, but you're, you're not, you're, but you're black. <laughs> I was like, yeah. uh, yes. And he's like, but you're not, not, but you're not, you're not Colombian. Um, and I was like, I don't think you're actually, then, then maybe you're not from Cali because you clearly don't know. Cali is one of the blackest cities in the country. So like, what, are you, yeah. what are you talking about? So I don't know. It's, it's, I feel you on that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's so I, I I shut him up really well, and I give him a history lesson in the coffee shop. But like, it's 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 exhausting. 
right? Like to jump into those conversations constantly and constantly feel like you have to defend your own skin and identity and right. Like mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. in your, have you ever been somewhere where you haven't felt the need to, to defend and, and either like either any kind of identity? Have you been in a place yet where you can, where you've been like, ah, <laughs> I can just be and people around me are accepting me and they're not, I don't need to, I don't need to defend either my Haitianness or my Americanness or what, like, have you been in a place like that yet? I have. And it started with African dance. Actually, I grew up in Northern California and uh, there's the African dance scene is just like hot and popping. And I started in Chico. Chico. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And uh, I started as a ballerina and jazz uh, dancer. And then once I discovered African dance, I was like, forget that. (laughs) (laughs) Freed my hair, you know, (laughs) you know, burned the tutus because because here I was with the dance that actually reached in to my body and said, this body works, you know, as opposed to ballet where you conform to it and you squeeze your body into that structure of ballet. But this West Indian and African dance was like, I want every curve of you and and that is where I could truly like celebrate who I was. And it's interesting too, uh, just growing up in a white community, you have um, body dysmorphia or um, in various ways, because you're just like comparing yourself to the white person. But when mm-hmm. I started African dance, I was surrounded by uh, mahogany hued black people who are Afrocentric and they were like, Oh, you are gorgeous. And look at this and that, and take the green contacts out of your eyes, girl, and, and stop straightening your hair. Cause you are just it right out of the womb. You were enough. And I was just taken so aback by that because no one had ever affirmed me in such a way, but in the African dance community, which I became obsessed with for a decade, um, they just loved me and they became mentors and guardians and um, and guided me in the discovering of myself because they modeled what loving melanin was. Yes, oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, that changed my life. And I think I wouldn't be the <laughs> woman that I am today if it wasn't for the African dance community because I went to Senegal twice uh, mm-hmm. to study dance and to get into nonsense. Um, <laughs> and, and it was just like, you know, but it was interesting too, because like um, being around men who celebrated me, because mm-hmm. as you know, like you are, you're a fair hue in in the black world, mm-hmm. in the black world, I'm I am of richer hue, mm-hmm. and um, and I did not grow up feeling beautiful. Mm-hmm. But in the African dance community, uh, there are a lot of Africans who love the black woman, who yeah. just love chocolate, you know. And so I was confronted with that, like men who 
were attracted to me. I'm like, oh, I'm attractive, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. So I, I really didn't grow up feeling attractive until I was confronted with those of from different countries, to be honest. Wow, yeah. Wow. It, well, it's so great to to hear how you're flourishing and how you've come to become the human that you are now in front of me. Um, and I ask this question to all of my guests. Where in your life do you think you can apply courage? Ah, that is such a vital question, especially at this time. Right? Um, yeah. I think, wow, that's, that's, uh, I looked at the questions, some of the questions that, that you had prepared, and I, I remember seeing this, this one and being just speechless almost because this, 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 this is, I don't know, if we can find the answer to the, give everyone that question and just have that be a required question to answer to get into any kind of educational institution or any job, mm-hmm. like we would have such a better society. You know? <laughs> I think, uh, Ah, where, I mean, I think with people, with, I think with, with any other human in any other situation, any, any given situation, any time, I think uh, when we talk about courage, we're talking about, um, for me, it comes back to questions and what i mean by that is being open and willing to step into sometimes difficult sometimes maybe even hurtful conversations especially with those who you love and care about um and in our case i think a lot of those that that those conversations present themselves with our adoptive families um and siblings uh romantic partners uh, anyone you care about, really. Um, I think really the, we as adoptees have so many extra layers of of, of questions of those around us. Um, also expectations of those around us. Um, and I think it's just, it's, I think it's imperative that we step in with both feet. Uh, to those conversations and to those questions. Uh, I think the, cur- the the piece of courage, uh, also I think this this process and this, yeah, this consistent pursuit of introspection has to be sustainable. It has to be constant. It has to be a weekly or a monthly thing where you're really, really going deep with the people you care most about, right? Um, it, it's it's not enough to to. It's just not enough to not do that. I think we owe it to ourselves to really, if we really deeply care about someone, we owe it to ourselves to go to all the depths to understand their 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 innermost humanity and it's it's i don't know i just I, I just love the question i love this concept of applying courage right um i don't know i think 
that's another piece of mental homework that you've given me for the weekend and for, for, for <laughs> <laughs> um, I really, I really think it has to start with the people that we have closest to us. Mm-hmm. Um, even when our voice trembles, even when our hands shake, even when, uh, when it feels difficult, I think that's when the most, that, yeah, I think that's when the best courage happens. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's vital. And without that, then we conform to, I think in some cases we conform to just a mediocre existence. And then we feel bad about that when we get to our eighties and our nineties. And we think of the, the opportunities missed with those we most care about. Here are my reflections. Earning your cultural badge is hurtful. And I'm here to tell you that you define, you define how Colombian you are or Haitian you are or whatever country you hail from. Your upbringing informs it is not an indictment. Explore your identity with your two feet and whole heart at your pace. If you want to immerse yourself, do it. Or you can take it slow, whichever feels most comfortable for you. And finally, I recommend reading The Alchemist. I feel that I'm in the eye of my personal legend. You will know when you are near yours. This book is one of my all-time favorites, and I revisit it every few years. I seriously do, and it blows my mind every single time. Thank you, Jacob, for this illuminating conversation. I bought Jacob's book, I Met Myself in October, A Memoir of Belonging, on Amazon. You can find it there, too, and we could all just read it together. As part of our new friendship, Jacob and I both reviewed each other's content. He jumped right on iTunes and reviewed my podcast, and I reviewed his on Amazon. This is what true uplifting looks like. Reviews tell readers and listeners that this content will change hearts and minds and lives. And if you believe that to be true, please review this podcast. Thanks so much. Another beautiful episode. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to my guest today. If you liked this episode, the best way to support me and this work is to write an iTunes review, a five-star review. (laughs) This helps us reach the top of searches and helps more people to find us. And if you personally want to connect, please reach out on Instagram or Facebook. And I have some great resource material on my website at laniceantoinshelly.com. So go on over there too. Until next we meet, go gently and have courage, my love.